This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We are in a climate emergency. Extreme flooding in Europe, wildfires and extreme heat in the American West, hurricanes in the Caribbean, and more. And more and more often we hear the qualifier, extreme, followed by, this is a once in a 500 years or once in a thousand year event. The climate crisis can no longer be ignored. As areas become unlivable, we see population dislocation and migration, species extinction, and widespread disease. And these effects have led to social unrest and demands for systemic responses. We are fortunate to have Melissa Figueroa and Ali Meders Knight with us to discuss the recent leaked IPCC, or Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's sixth assessment report, and its dire consequences for the planet, as well as to discuss their own work on climate catastrophe mitigation. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very, very pleased to have my producer, director, engineer, and almost everything else, extraordinaire, Melissa Figueroa, and Ali Meadows Knight back with us. I can't think of two better people to have here to discuss the ongoing climate emergency. So we're going to do most of that today. And I should just begin by saying we are in a widely recognized climate emergency. In fact, the only climate deniers remaining, it seems, are those who benefit from its denial. And that means, what, Republican officialdom, their base, and their backers, the fossil fuel industry captains. As of this moment, Europe is in the midst of extreme flooding, characterized by meteorologists in Germany as floods not seen in 500 to 1,000 years. Those are words that we've been hearing for several years now to describe other manifestations of the climate crisis, like wildfires throughout the American West and intense hurricanes in the Caribbean. And both Ali and Melissa are in Chico, California. They're within 100 miles of fires. Last summer, we talked about the fires there. We're going to do more of that today. But just to continue, we have extreme downpours flooding Germany, Belgium, Switzerland, and the Netherlands this week. The startling and horrifying images on our screens of floods, fires, and destructions are unfortunately now commonplace. Scientists agree that all major weather this year is affected by climate change. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the UN-backed group that reports on the science and impacts of global warming, says these events will only increase as the temperatures continue to rise. And I know that you as the listeners hear this a lot, but I'll just repeat one more thing that they say. For every degree Celsius, every one degree Celsius of warming, the air can hold 7% more moisture. So these storm events are only going to increase in intensity. So the bigger picture of extremes that we're seeing in summer in the northern hemisphere, like extreme heat, intense rainfall, and intense 
wildfires are all connected. One scientist says one extreme in one place is always accompanied by extremes of different types. And it is the same story. This isn't surprising, as I've just said. In June, a leaked report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change predicted that climate change will fundamentally reshape life on Earth in the coming decades, even if humans can tame planet-warming greenhouse gas emissions. They continued to write, and we're going to talk about species extinction, more widespread disease, unlivable heat, ecosystem collapse, cities menaced by rising seas. These and other devastating climate impacts are accelerating and bound to become painfully obvious before a child born today turns 30. To skip to the punchline of the report, but we're really fortunate to be able to spend the hour today with Melissa Figueroa, who is a climate emergency environmental justice field coordinator for PDA and many other things I'll introduce in a minute, and Ali Matters Knight, traditional ecological knowledge practitioner about this leaked climate report, the dangers we face, and their own work on climate catastrophe mitigation. So after all that, welcome back to Jacobin Radio. Thank you, Susie. Thanks, thanks. So I'm going to let me just, in case the listeners don't know all the hats that you wear, Melissa, and you too, Ali. Melissa is a PhD candidate at UC Berkeley in geography. She spent two years in the Amazon researching indigenous agroforestry and all of its lessons for sustainable development. And as I mentioned, she's the Climate Emergency Environmental Justice Field Coordinator for PDA, and she's also a faculty owner of the Cooperative New School for Urban Studies and Environmental Justice. And she works with Ali Meadows Knight on native-led ecosystem restoration and management and environmental workforce development with the Chico Traditional Ecological Stewardship Program and Intertribal Stewardship Workforce Initiative in Northern California. So that's a lot to say, Melissa. I'm going to skip the rest so I can tell the listeners about the extraordinary woman who's at your side and who you work with. And that's Ali Meadows Knight, and she joins us again I think it's been almost a year, Ali. Ali is a Machupta tribal member, a mother of five, and a traditional basket weaver in Chico. And she is the Machupta tribal liaison working to form partnerships for federal forest stewardship contracting and tribal forestry programs that were authorized in the 2018 Farm Bill. She's been a tech or a traditional ecological knowledge practitioner for 20 years. I love that acronym. It's T-E-K, and you can look it up online. And she's been collaborating on environmental education and land restoration projects with Chico State University and the city of Chico. We're going to learn more about both of them, but let's get to the topics today. And I think the very first thing of course, is this leaked 4,000-page draft, 4,000-page draft, that's a lot, of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's sixth assessment report that was leaked to Agence uh, France Press. And then, of course, there is, you can look it up, a 32-page executive summary. So why don't I turn it over to you first, Melissa, just to describe what, what's in this. Sure. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change brings together scientists from all over the world and from many different regions to study the effects of climate change and to model projections for 
the next century and the next several decades based on what is currently happening. And so every several years, they come out with an assessment of the current state of the climate and uh, modified projections based on what's been going on. So this will be the sixth assessment report, and it is 4,000 pages because it is incredibly data heavy. It is basically a summary and a synthesis of all of the science. And so this report is um, incredibly dire, to put it in so many words. It talks about how the Earth has already warmed 1.1 degrees Celsius, And so all of the catastrophes that we're seeing right now in this season, in this year, in 2021, is the result of the warming of just one degree Celsius. Their current projections show three degrees of warming at best. That is, if we, if we decide as a a planet to curb carbon emissions to the Paris Agreement, we'll get to three. And the worst case scenario is 5.7 degrees, which will basically threaten all life on Earth. So it's definitely not a rosy picture. It's not anywhere near that. So, oh, And yeah, and it's a scary overview. And it's let's go into the actual, I guess, nitty gritty of the report. So the projections suggest that we're headed for or are already in, as you've just said, a mass extinction event. And we are now past the point of no return. So that's pretty scary. What does that mean for not just humans, but I guess for all living things on the planet? How can you describe what this really means? Ali? Well, I think it's really important to understand, first off, that climate change has happened on this planet based on other catastrophes or other natural catastrophes. So let's talk about way back when Pompeii erupted. And then we're going to look at a climate change that took all over the world. And that was because of an event, but in this, a volcano event. So all over the world, there's been traditional knowledge and human knowledge of the effects of climate change. When one situations happen on one place on the earth, it affected another place. And so when we get into understanding how people survive during climate change, during these other events, we are looking and tracking down traditional ecological knowledge of housing, where people stayed for different reasons. And so when I look at my traditional landscape here, I understand that there's stories of flooding. I'm understanding about fire and even volcanoes. We have active volcanoes here. And so with this type of knowledge, you start beginning to understand that there has been human survival during this very very pinnacle, critical time. And yes, the knowledge of that survival skill is really going to be tested against capitalism and tested against our good sense. Because right now, the pivotal move is to make as much money on on the disasters as possible. And that's kind of been the whole focal gear. And so since we're looking at being taken advantage of as a globe during our most vulnerable time, most of it is trying to get us centered on the solutions rather than working about who gets paid and who covers insurance during these times around the world. One thing to understand about climate change, I think a lot of the sort of less rosy pictures that have been drawn of the climate catastrophe, people sometimes get this sort of image in their mind of like the planet's going to burn up and then everybody's just going to die. And what we're seeing, what we are 
beginning to see now is climate change has different effects based on where you are, right? And it has seasonal effects. It just means that all of our weather patterns are going to get more volatile, more intense, and more extreme. So that's one thing to think about. You know, people see the the ice melting in Greenland, and they don't necessarily connect it to like, okay, that means things are going to get hotter or even colder, right? So the polar vortex that the Midwest of the and Northeast of the United States has been experiencing over the last three years is a counterpoint to the heat dome that we are experiencing now in the U.S. Southwest. So, so if we look at it as okay, you know, it's melting in Greenland and Antarctica, and then everybody's going to die. It's kind of zooming in on that and saying, okay, the ice sheets melting in Greenland and the ice sheets melting in Antarctica means that, right, our summers are going to get hotter, our winters are going to get colder, and every storm is going to be more intense than it was before. We can look at the places where we live and think about how to adapt to the effects that are going to happen in those places. Because, I mean, even if we stop all fossil fuel production tomorrow, even if capitalism goes away, you know, magically, if we wave the magic wand, capitalism goes away, we are still going to have to deal with the effects of these changes. That's already unavoidable. That's been made clear in the IPCC report. And so, you know, as Ali said, our species has gone through global climate changes before. Our species went through the Ice Age and then the ending of the Ice Age. The climate wobble, which I like to say between 8900 and 1250, that people say that the Maya collapsed during this period. But, you know, if you look at the traditional actual knowledge of it, they made a conscious choice to leave the cities and develop new forms of agriculture in the creek beds and lake beds to adapt to a 300 year drought, right? These are all things that have happened and that people have actually like found ways to adapt to it before. So all this to say is that we absolutely must have action at the global level to, you know, to stop the pain, to stop the unrelenting drive towards ecological degradation. But this kind of apocalypse, the movie apocalypse that we have in our heads of everybody just dying in an instant, it's not going to happen that way. It's going to be, our solutions are going to be place-based and they're going to have to draw on this long-term knowledge, as in tens of thousands of years knowledge of these cycles happening for us to have the best chance at survival. And Go ahead, Ali. Did you want to say something there? Yeah, I think there's a good example here, and I'll use my own experience. Um, Years ago, I was in a FEMA meeting with U.S. agents, federal agents, who were going over the 200-year flood, the Pineapple Express, the monsoon that comes over Northern California, all the way through Southern California, and so also, I think, Washington and Oregon. And so this is called the 200-year flood. And it is something that has happened for thousands of years. But we have to remember that California is a very new state. It is only 170 years old. So the last 200-year monsoon flood that cycles regularly over this area for thousands of years, typically about every 200 years, time happened in 1862. 1868 was when it finally started to settle down where people could start living in the area again. So when we assess the situation back in 1862 through 1868, not a lot of pioneers lived in California, but enough did to where it made an impact on the development of the newly started California. 
And so Sacramento has a whole underground city that's been buried based on this flood 200 years ago, or now 150 years ago. Mm-hmm. So when we're looking at this situation, FEMA understands scientifically for a fact this will actually happen regardless of anything that we do. Mm-hmm. So what is the remedy? Well, the problem is, is that Sacramento and most of the watershed that is going to be impacted by this 200-year flood is inundated with homes and infrastructure and malls and schools and a whole cities and development. And it is nearly impossible in the federal government's eyes to tell these large communities that they have to vacate this place because a flood's going to come in 200 years and kill them. The best chance that they have is to, and this is what they had said, is to warn whoever they can to get to higher places. But the only remedy the federal government really has is to bring and clean up for the body bag. As cruel as that is, that is the only solution. And then, of course, they're looking at, well, when it settles, how do we rebuild? And those starts, that's where we have to start the conversation. Why are we focused on rebuilding and already considering writing off thousands of people in California and focused on what to do after they're dead. That seems to be the point of contention and all of our planning on adaptation to this climate change. So I think what we should do in order to see if we can get through almost all of this is to go through the major takeaways from this report and then go back and let's talk then about, you know, what the implications are and what, because you brought in Ali Matters Knight, traditional ecological knowledge perspective, bring in past experience as well as future details, I guess, of what could be done to mitigate it or what kind of strategies exist. But let's, in order to, I think, emphasize the gravity of what we're talking about here, let's go back now and talk about what the other major takeaways from this leaked report are. So, Melissa, why don't you take up there? You began with a slight overview, but then I guess the issue is first current levels of adaptation will be inadequate to future climate risks. And I guess that is a question. Will they be inadequate and what what else exists? But maybe just first do a quick brief What are these four takeaways? Sure. So I already mentioned the first takeaway from the IPCC report, which is that the Earth has already warmed by 1.1 degrees Celsius, meaning that the 1.5 degree Celsius target defined in the 2015 Paris Agreement will be reached and exceeded in the next five years. So basically that target that was set in the international agreements, we're already going to blow through it. and There's no way around that. Number two, as you mentioned, the current levels of adaptation will be inadequate to respond to future climate risks. What that means is that, again, the effects of climate change are going to be differential depending on what the place is, but it's going to impact everything that we need to survive, our food, water, and infrastructure, housing and infrastructure. Tens of millions more people are likely to face chronic hunger by 2050, and 130 million more could experience extreme poverty if inequality is allowed to deepen. The coastal cities of the front line of the climate crisis will see hundreds of millions of people at risk from floods and increasingly frequent storm surges made more deadly by rising seas. I think there was a map that was released a few days ago showing What will happen if the warming goes over 2 degrees Celsius? It basically means that most of the eastern seaboard is gone, 
Florida will be gone underwater. And again, the majority of people live within a uh, hundred or two hundred miles of a coast. What that means is a lot of climate migration. It's going to mean a lot of displacement. And again, all of the social issues that are going to happen with that if we continue on our, you know, anti-immigrant policies and anti-homeless policies, all of that. I mean, here in Chico, you know, we have, this is a site of climate refugees. Over 48,000 people were displaced by the campfire in 2018, 26,000 people in paradise alone. And we are seeing the difficulties of the aftermath of that in a city that is already under a federal lawsuit for its anti-homeless policies. So the third takeaway outlines the danger of compound and cascading impacts related to what are called tipping points in the climate system. Now, again, the, the world's climate system is incredibly complex, and there are at least 9 to 12. The scientists will debate on you know, which ones are more crucial than others. But there are certain things that will that can happen that will trigger runaway global warming. So this is not a linear event. It's not like the carbon dioxide is just going to correspond. One of these tipping points that I've been tracking since at least the early 2000s is already starting to happen, which is the melting of the permafrost in Siberia. It reached 118 degrees in Siberia last week. And that melting permafrost includes huge amounts of methane. Now, methane is a greenhouse gas that is 300 times more potent than carbon dioxide. The releasing of that methane will accelerate the process of global warming to an exponential degree that it's very hard to estimate, but it just means it's going to get exponentially worse. Same thing is the melting of the ice sheets in Greenland will inhibit the Gulf Stream, which is the warm currents that carry warm air to Europe from the Caribbean and the Gulf Coast. If the Gulf Stream slows or stops, that has implications for the entire global circulation of atmosphere and ocean currents, which could kind of uh, actually bring colder winters to Europe. And so these tipping points are also what really is, is scaring, you know, a lot of the scientists, because if these tipping points are all breached, then this is going to be a runaway process of abrupt climate change. Okay, and there's one more, but I want to go back now because there's just so much here, and I'm afraid that we'll lose the thread. So I'm glad you did that, Melissa, because I just want to keep it all front and center, that what, we're, what we are facing is multi-pronged, international, and as you know, I said in the outset, that what happens in one place has repercussions and effects that accompany it in other places. And, you know, mostly what we talk about is what's happening in the Northern Hemisphere. But of course, you know, we'll get to our winter and we'll talk about fires in Australia and all over Latin America, you know, and droughts elsewhere and, you know, monsoons, all sorts of effects that just continue unabated. Or perhaps let's say that any steps taken so far are just not up to the task in order to really make a big difference. So let's go back now. We've gone over, I would say, the first takeaway about what happens when the planet warms, just one degree or 1.1 degree Celsius, and what that means in terms of the moisture. We're seeing it right now in the flooding and the downpours, where all over Europe, they're getting a month's worth of rain every day. 
which is, you know, like when we live in parched California, it's pretty incredible to even think about that. So now let's look at the second question. The current levels of adaptation will be inadequate to respond to future climate risks. And, you know, you very quickly outlined this takeaway about, you know, the kinds of things that will happen, let's say, by mid-century. But let's go back to that. So we're feeling many of them today, as you said, Melissa, and... Alley with the heat dome, the fires, severe hurricanes, the drought, and this really peculiar thing that's happening right down here in Southern California that we have a kind of Mediterranean climate right now. It, sure, it's hot in the summer. We're going through a heat wave, but, you know, we have a lot of milder, more humid weather as well. And I'm sure that's related and you can talk about it. But both of you are living in a wildfire area. And before we came on the air, you told me, Melissa, that there's the fires are within 100 miles, I think you said, of where you're living. Three fires right now burning within a 100-mile radius of where we are. Right. And, of course, everyone remembers what happened in the town of Paradise, which is now, wow, pre-pandemic and three years back. But what can you say, I guess, about what you're seeing right now? And what our social responses, either adaptive or maladaptive, have been to them. Yeah. Mrs. Ali. So this is Ali. So I see a lot of the the backlash of having people looking at firefighting as a strategic plan for land management. So the heroes that get to step up still today are bombing the the fire with water, they're bombing everything with, with fire retardant. And that seems to be where everyone's applauding and kind of like, that's their heroic moment. And I think people are being really misled into the effectiveness of that kind of hero coming to save the day on these big planes, dropping these big retardants everywhere, that that is going to work for the rest of our lives. That is going to be probably that what we call like false pride or, you know, a false sense of, of security and how we tackle long-term projects. Like how do we undo 150 years of bad land management? And when I say bad, what I mean is, is that California for a long time didn't have regulations on how they mined and extracted and produced the number one economy in the United States. And when they did started to regulate it, it was, it came from a very Republican, you know, Ronald Reagan comes from California. And so it gives you the impression, you know, that California is liberal, but no, we're right there. We're right there. And so when we talk about land management and fires out here, Nobody is thinking about what we can do for climate change. For You know, where do we survive if it burns? Where do we survive when it floods? Where do we go when everything floods in the valley and we have to go to higher ground and all we have is charcoal woods? What do we do with that? How do we survive these places? And if we don't, then we're going to be, you know, struggling to compete for these resources in a very unfamiliar landscape because we really haven't been introduced to our ecosystems as a customer. And so we've allowed corporations to do all the extracting and processing and then we go shop for it in a very bougie way. Unfortunately, climate change is showing us that our patterns of 
giving the heroes and, you know, paying for the firefighters and police to save us from everything is probably not going to lead us into the adaptation that we need for the future. And I think as you respond to that, or at least elaborate on what Ali just said, Melissa, maybe you could also consider what the takeaway says, that not just that tens of millions will face hunger, but right now in California, we're moving into a water crisis, a water shortage. And what it says that 350 million people living in urban areas will be exposed to water scarcity. We're seeing that in 410 million uh, if it goes up another degree. You know, these are like figures that are they're very difficult to comprehend. They're numbers on a page, but maybe you could just go into that a little bit more, Melissa. So, yeah, again, these numbers on the page, they, they don't seem to hit us where we live. It's hard to translate to what happens every day, and I think that's why a lot of people are either paralyzed by despair or they don't care. They just, or just, they just think they can just keep going. You know, look at the heat dome that happened last week, right? And you said 350 million people around the world live in urban areas. And most urban areas, including Los Angeles, which takes most of its water from the Colorado River and from Northern California, our part of Northern California that's on fire, the watershed would normally hydrate the landscape to help bulwark against wildfires, but now all that water is going down south. So that's one, you know, the colonial relationship of Southern California and the metropolitan areas to the hinterlands of Northern California is, you know, exactly one of the things that Ali was talking about in terms of what does it take to build this capitalist economy is the extraction from the poor areas and, but more resource rich, right? Capital poor, but resource rich. And, you know, what that means is that and then when people are concentrated in urban areas that are mostly built up with concrete and asphalt and materials that are chemically treated because of the way that our capitalist construction industry works, that means that the heat effects of a heat wave are going to be even more severe. Now, I grew up down there, and so I, you know, we've been through these hundred, you know, triple digit temperatures before. And in that concrete heat island of the L.A. basin, right, where the rivers and creeks have been paved over and put into a concrete channel, you know, those triple digit temperatures are going to be far less tolerable than they would in other places like here in Chico. Here in Chico, yeah, a lot of it is paved over, but the creeks still run through the city, you know, for, for better or worse, condition that they're in. But there's still a lot of trees and there's a lot of landscape that can absorb water. So 111 degrees in a place like Chico actually feels a lot different than 111 degrees in L.A. simply because of the urban infrastructure. So putting more money into traditional urban infrastructure is not the way to go. And it also, I should just interrupt, feels, you know, different in Portland, Oregon, or Seattle, Washington, or Vancouver, uh, British Columbia. All of these cities, you know, and areas around them experience triple digit in the teens during this heat dome. So talk a little bit about that, too. Yeah. And, you know, all of this, and I want to emphasize that all of this comes back to the exploitation of energy sources, namely fossil fuels, Right. So fossil fuel energy, which now produces majority of energy for our society, 
again, you heat wave hit pits places like Washington and British Columbia, people are going to need more air conditioning. But that's also a feedback loop, right? Because you're going to need more energy to power the air conditioners. Well, the more energy that you're going to use to power the air conditioners, the more you're going to have a need for dams and fossil fuel infrastructure to power that. The thing about it is that we're going to have to give up fossil fuels as an energy source. What does that mean? And we cannot really replace it one for one with solar or hydro. Again, you build a, a new dam for more hydro, you're going to dry out the landscape and cause more fires. I mean, what this takeaway from the IPCC report says, it says we need transformational change operating on processes and behaviors at all levels, individual, communities, business, institutions, and governments. It says we must redefine our way of life and consumption. You can't just wave a magic wand or one technology that's going to solve all this. It really does mean going back to an economy and a system much like, you know, Ali and her ancestors experienced which all of us, all of our peoples experienced at one point in time, which is living in a way that utilizes the natural resources in a way that is sustainable and renews it, right? That's another thing that's very unfamiliar to our society today. Yeah. And before we get into that, Ali, I want to just go a little bit further because I think this is incredible. And we've said many times on this show, we've had other guests as well talking about system change, not climate change, which is now being widely recognized, even if you think about Biden's proposals for uh, making the climate emergency front and center in the uh, infrastructure package. We can maybe mention some of that, but I want to go back now over some of the tipping points that the leaked report outlines that are compound and cascading, as they say, and which, you know, rub up against the thresholds of points of no return, as they say. And the other part about it, too, is that as these things happen more quickly than estimated and in a more extreme way, the scientists are also playing catch up, right? To learn, you know, just how severe it is and what kind of possible responses we can have. And I also think, you know, Melissa, people will have heard what you just said about going back, but it's going back to a time when the population wasn't what it is now. And so I guess part of what we need to discuss here in terms of the tipping points is actually looking, starting from where we are, you know, and how what we can go. So I just gave you like a you know, multi-pronged set of questions for both of you to consider. But let's start with these tipping points. I think one of the tipping points and the opportunities is, as we all know, crisis situations or emergency situations allow for a lot of open minds to come to the table and maybe listen to, to views and angles that they were not open to before. And so state of California, the governor Newsom is stepped up and said, okay, we understand there's 33 million acres of forests, 19 are federal. So we're going to manage a 1 million per year as a first stepping stone for adaptation. And so that as tiny and insignificant and as kind of unuseful one acre is through this crisis, what it did was it brought in people to, to criticize and add to that of what was more important. And so what we started to look at as a state of California for tribes is how can we bring consultation and how can we bring federal oversight where the state of California and local municipals are going to be forced to kind of 
comply with federal law and do consultations with every tribe that they're in. Because everywhere you are, you're in tribal territory as long as you're in the United States. I can tell that. I think First Nations are the same. So as long as you're in North America, everywhere you stand is on some tribal territory. It's probably the same for South America as well. Exactly. <laughs> so this, this, this point is something that the federal government is not unaware of. And so when it comes to oversight, it's almost like tribes and tribal communities and different organizations have an opportunity to argue and bring in their oversight as well as the state and other municipals that kind of got us here in the first place. And it sounds, you know, just interrupt one thing. It sounds like, you know, you are being utilized more and more as people recognize that they don't have all the answers. Is that the case? So what it came in as understanding workforce development. What's happening in this crisis here in Chico and in Butte County is that the disaster capitalist kind of approach to seeing the campfire, selling off property, having major corporations like Tetra Tech come in and do all the, re, you know, the changes here in the community is that people were jobless. People are still wanting to be a part of it. And as the fires start encroaching, there seems to be less enthusiasm about how to manage it and more fear about when it comes to get you. And so when you have that situation, I kind of come in with these ideas of economic development that talk about seed banking, about going out and understanding how to collect seed, how to find our drought tolerant plants, how to find our fire adopted plants, how to put landscapes down in our wooey and our urban woodland interface areas and be able to protect these areas and also create workforce and not just workforce that is being paid a dollar an hour, but to go ahead and look at this as where this is what we can draw down when we get money for climate adaptation through our agencies, through our state and federal agencies, let's already have a plan of spending that money that's effective and stimulating our economy. And that seems to get a lot of people's ears because doing nothing is only thing on the table. Absolutely. I mean, I want to go back to this idea of tipping points. And I know there's plenty and plenty of media around the scientific tipping points for runaway climate change, like what I mentioned before, Siberia and the Gulf Stream, also the Amazon flipping from net carbon negative to carbon positive, which seems to be happening this fire season. All of those are like tipping points that, again, it's a one factor that then kind of affects the whole complex. One of the things that we also have to adjust our thinking about is, again, understanding the nonlinear nature of climate change and of our global systems. And again, just changing one thing is a drop in the bucket, but there are tipping points on the other side too. There are things that you can address right now that can have that cascading effect in a good way, right? So as Ali said, tribes actually having authority in their own territories to help direct uh, forestry management agencies, labor agencies, workforce development to create jobs of forest restoration that actually put people in those forests, but to manage them, right? is one tipping point that can, you know, address a whole host of things. So again, biodiversity is another tipping point that IPCC mentions that we have a loss of biodiversity in an extinction event. Well, right now, the world's indigenous peoples are only 4% of the population, yet they manage 80% of the biodiversity, right? So like, 
let's imagine this tipping point of indigenous peoples actually having a say in what happens in their ancestral territories, whether or not it's a reserve or not, right? If, if 4%, right, manages 80%, and then that 4% gets to, you know, have a say and have authority over what everybody else does, that's a huge tipping point that can be for the good. Another one is, you know, you mentioned population issues, and that is a very common narrative when it comes to climate change and ecological degradation. But unfortunately, it's one that will also lend to racist arguments, because when you talk about overpopulation, people have in their images, like black and brown people having poor people having a lot of children. And what I like to say is like, yeah, we do have an overpopulation problem of billionaires and major corporations and landholders. See, we can't start to talk about the carrying capacity of a planet in a place where land consolidation and land ownership actually inhibits the adaptive capacity of human beings. You know, most of California, all these tribal territories, they're now owned by large agribusiness, by forestry companies, by logging, by extraction and, you know, fracking, right? You know, what tipping point can we produce if we re-examine this idea of private property and land ownership and like actually allow people to, you know, in a, again, with, with indigenous peoples at the leadership at the helm, have, you know, seasonal migration where people will go to the higher elevations in a summer and the lower elevations in the winter or things that actually mimic the traditional patterns of how people lived on this land. We can't do that as long as there is this huge, you know, as long as Bill Gates owns 250,000 acres of land, you know, as long as these agribusiness corporations take all the water. Our resource management is never something that's really looked at as a precursor to talking about the relationship of population to a landscape, right? It's also, I mean, because I'm really glad that you're putting it in that context. And of course, I wasn't really talking about overpopulation, but just the, you know, the fact of what the size of the population is and what that means in terms of land and water and everything else. But I think this should lead us, you know, to the fourth takeaway, which is that, you know, the IPCC says that there's a lot that can be done. And I think that's your message as well. And that, I mean, I guess the point they're making is that these worst case scenarios for impacts that we can be prepared in some ways for them And perhaps, you know, I guess this is the question, is it possible to think about solutions? And I mean, more than just the solutions that are on offer today that really will confront the massive nature of what we're undergoing. And so the real question there is, you know, is the system up to the tasks that are facing it? And Are there technological fixes? We like to think of most problems being social and political, and which is to say that there are social and political ways of dealing with them, which would include massive financing of technological know-how and, you know, building to mitigate the disasters that we're seeing in nature or that nature is imposing on us because of the way that we've organized the planet thus far. So before we just say, you know, capitalism is the problem, what other things can we say about this final takeaway? Because, you know, it's you can't just be utopian here. We have to be practical about what step tomorrow. You know, I, I've always thought about this because of kind of like the impossible situation that I heard about the California flood upcoming. 
and just kind of like the hands up in the air, oh, well, it kind of collides with this overpopulation situation where there's almost like there's expendable humans sitting in these landscapes. And if this is the way they go, it's just based on where they live. And this is the consequence of the human condition on this planet. And it becomes really cold like that. And so one of the points that it kind of stuck with me about this is that when there's a major catastrophe of a flood, you have sometimes about a foot of water coming every 20 minutes. And so when you think about your house and how far you can drive in 20 minutes, can you get to higher ground? And that's if you have zero traffic. That's as if nobody else is on the road and it's just you. Now, just imagine if there is thousands of people in 20 minutes trying to get out. You're going to get a traffic jam. And so what I started thinking about is how can we start having cues of, you know, when flooding gets to a point that we would definitely start removing, you know, elders and and children and families that are willing to go to a place when we know the indication is within this danger zone. We don't have to wait until thousands of people are trapped in their vehicles trying to get up road. And we can strategically put these areas in federal land and state owned land And we can actually think about strategically what kind of seed banking should we put around these rescue centers and what kind of preparations should we make under these? Not as if they were like underground bunkers, but functional places where people could actually provide from themselves and sustain some kind of substance for a period of time while there's recovery and healing taking place. And do you both see, um, just, you know, to sort of preempt this other issue, do you see similar preparations for you know, catastrophic floods to what we see for out of control wildfires, you know, are these, are they to be tackled in the same way? And I guess this is a broader question. um, And I await your answer. (laughs) Well, I mean, in terms of the current management in that the current approach to disasters, and you see this, if you go to the NOAA and look at their time series of billion dollar disasters, it's going to happen. And then we're just going to pay a giant corporation to go and clean up afterwards. Obviously, that is not going to work. It's costing more. It's, you know, all people are already devastated. And then nobody cares about those people after the devastation occurs. And then government contractors get the bulk of the the money to clean up things in ways that just leave us vulnerable to the next wildfire or, or disaster. What Ali is really talking about is like, looking at it from, again, the point of view of mitigation, of being able to be prepared. I mean, we already know we're past the point of no return for major disasters. So let's look at what we can do in advance of those disasters. And so for fires, a lot of it is like traditional fire and traditional forest management, which is going to take, it's labor intensive. So it is going to take a lot of people and that's workforce, that's jobs, that's, you know, places of housing that can be done, you know, in a manner that is also uh, sustainable and, and helpful to the environment. The other thing we can also look at is um, looking at how our landscapes are and our watersheds and are actually managed now. You know, a lot of what is called farmland in this continent are floodplains, are traditionally floodplains where a lot of actually food crops were cultivated, but in a way that followed the natural movements of the water through the landscape. Here, 
you know, we have to let go of the idea that technology can control the the natural features of an environment to deliver benefits to capitalists and and consumers. The idea of having systems that actually mimic and follow the natural sequence of landscapes of course it's not it might not generate so much profit for Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos but it will deliver a livelihood on the moon anyway yeah. right <laughs> it'll deliver <laughs> livelihood and survival for the vast majority of people that can live in these places yeah so let's talk then about in a concrete way about the proposals that you're seeing from from both Biden in the infrastructure and then from Newsom for California and how far they go toward, you know, the, before we before we I guess we talk about like whether or not they're going to get passed. That's a that's a very big if. But how far will they go to help both prepare and mitigate? Well, just this week, the White House released the American Jobs, uh, the first draft of the American Jobs Plan, which is largely based on the bipartisan infrastructure proposal that Biden, of course, he doesn't need to compromise with the Republicans, but he will. It doesn't have pretty much anything in terms of being able to address the climate crisis. The one thing that was excluded but now included, which actually is a good thing and which should be expanded more, is the Civilian Climate Corps. So $40 billion was authorized for the Civilian Climate Corps, which, you know, again, will be an amazing thing. It will put, you know, thousands of people to work. But how those thousands of people are going to be put to work is a real question. Are they going to be put to work cleaning up after disasters the way that land management agencies are currently doing things? Or can the Civilian Climate Corps be under the direction of tribes that can train people in a traditional ecological knowledge, that can provide infrastructure for being able to live on the land so that the Civilian Climate Corps can actually have a real positive function as opposed to just cleaning up after the mess. I think that's a really important point. I think what even the vision that I've had is to be able to create workforces that can go into uh, woodlands, uh, forest since we have millions of acres here, and to be able to create areas that are basically deliverables of biodiversity and also housing that they provide for the workforce during their development of this area that then can be used as a safe area during climate change when people have to move on. So they're basically opening up these basically zones of housing within these areas that are have the capacity to put shelter and safety around families and smaller communities that have to be put into safe places. And I think that if we kind of strategically use this workforce with tribes and create these areas, we're moving forward to a proactive time rather than regressive victimizing ourselves during this climate change. You know, one of the things that I, I know Ali's talked about is that, you know, capitalist society puts their settlements where it is most uh, strategic and makes sense for the movement of commodities. So that mm-hmm. means they put their cities in floodplains by rivers, or they put their cities on a coast, or they put, you know, so like mm-hmm. where where it makes most economic sense under capitalism is really the most disastrous place by to point. do it yeah. ecologically. Now, what tribal leadership and direction can do is to help 
start to build these safe zones and communities in places that make the most sense for ecological sustainability and restoration, you know? So if these get started, then it can become safe havens and places where people can actually live in the places and do the things that are geared towards healing the earth, not destroying it further. Um, the one other thing I want to mention for right now, something that is on the table right now that people can call up their congressperson and, and talk about it is the End Polluter Welfare Act. This is one thing that we haven't talked about, but is absolutely on people's minds is that we need to stop the subsidizing of fossil fuel infrastructure. We need to stop the pipelines. We need to stop all of that. And there's $63 billion of direct and indirect government subsidies that is put to the fossil fuel industry every year. And those go back to the development of the oil industry and John Rockefeller in the, the days of Standard Oil. So, you know, if the, if all of those subsidies were put in to make a fossil fuel industry a hundred years ago, those subsidies can be taken away from the fossil fuel industry right now. And the, and, and the, the act talks about $150 billion over the next 10 years. Um, to be put towards the climate smart programs and these types of recovery programs and mitigation programs. If it was okay for the government to subsidize fossil fuel, now they can use that same money and that same revenue to subsidize recovery from it, recovery from our fossil fuel addiction. So. I want to bring it back down to one final little question about very concrete things that could have been suggested for, you know, years and years, but have never been put into place, but now seem to be uh, there. And you you both mentioned, you know, that we need to create a, a, a civilian core of climate mitigators, let's say, or or workers who can help do this. But do you see things like unpaving the L.A. River? undoing the dams and hydroelectric power that results from it as uh, being enough or worthwhile, let's say, uh, now that will help immensely in mitigating some of the big disasters? Or is it too little too late? I think we need to train ourselves into a goods for services program of managing our landscapes and our ecosystems. So when we can utilize the core to kind of introduce us into an economy of housing products from the forest floor, biomass uh, energy development through the biomass when you're doing cleanup or you're reducing fuels that have been collected for a 100 years, you want to manage that biomass and, and you can turn it into um, into think products. Even the charcoal of burning of things beforehand has a very good intention as well as repercussion that goes out. So when I'm looking at it is teaching these cores not only to remove these dams, but to actually create an economy based on what's in that environment and also bring to people the opportunity to create their own businesses by managing land in a more healthy way. So instead of going out into a whole rice field and using a bunch of water or a bunch of almond field, your best bet is to have these cores come in and learn to manage biodiversity and you have a better economy on that locally that will it and is the long game uh, of success that you should be get, betting on mm-hmm. so we, we we shrink the capital portion and grow the resource portion literally do we chop up the river do we unpay the, the river we let the, the beavers river. do all the Free work <laughs> let the beavers leave it to beavers the last thing i want to say is that is it too little too late 
well, we got to do something because the way we're doing it now is not working. And so, you know, we have to do everything we can that is to promote human survival and to increase equality and justice, right, when it comes to our environmental crisis. And the people that, I mean, unfortunately, the people who are in charge of driving the solutions are the people who have never had to deal with issues of human survival or injustice or equality. We're asking the wrong people and we're putting the, the capital in the wrong people's hands to come up with solutions. If we really truly want to survive and enter into an environmentally just world, we need to ask the survivors. We need to ask the people who survive that the indigenous people of this continent have already been living through an ecological t- catastrophe for 500 years here in California, only for 180 years. And so people who have have lived through oppression, resource deprivation, and environmental social disaster are the ones that we should be asking and putting the capital uh, putting the capital in their hands to help us come up with the best solutions possible so that we can, you know, survive in at least get the best result we possibly could in this dire situation that we're in. I want to thank you both for really spending an incredibly illuminating hour that managed to still have a lot of hope in it, given, you know, the immensity of the catastrophe that we're facing. So Melissa Figueroa, who is a Ph.D. candidate in geography at Berkeley and also is the Climate Emergency Environmental Justice Field Coordinator for PDA and so much more. And Ali Metters Knight, they work together on native-led Ecosystem Restoration Management and Environmental Workforce Development with the Chico Traditional Ecological Stewardship Program. And Allie Metters Knight is a Machupta tribal member, mother of five, and incredible all-around Renaissance woman. What website can I direct the listeners to to find out more? Yeah, you can hear this and from our, this different perspective at tekchico.org. And if you're in the Chico area, come by on Friday mornings. We do hands-on workshops as well. That's T-E-K and his traditional ecological knowledge. Thanks so much, both of you, for being with me on Jacobin Radio and for, you know, bringing some hope into this crazy situation. 